All right, so today is Palm Sunday, the day, uh, the Sunday that Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem on a Sunday, and he was crucified on that Friday of that week. So here is the text. We're going to look at it from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Now let me stop right here. This is a a map of the old city of Jerusalem. Okay, Here's the temple. And this is the Mount of Olives. So they were coming from the east. So Bethpage is mentioned. Bethany's over here. This is a mountain range. And then you go down a valley into the Kidron Valley. And then you go up. Uh, the temple is on a mount. You go up another steep hill. So let me show you. Last January, I stood in the Kidron Valley. And this is a picture of the Mount of Olives. Uh, now, we don't know exactly for sure, but uh, some people think that this is the Garden of Gethsemane right here. Okay, So this is facing east. If you turn south... Here's the highway today that comes. So so here's the Mount of Olives. So this would be a highway. Whoa. What did we do? Did we bang it? (laughs) This is what I at home, I just kick it. And it usually works. Wow. So uh, those were my pictures of the Holy Land. (laughs) And there, there's a highway there today. Now, we don't know if that's the same path that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on. But it makes sense because, uh, I mean, you wouldn't want to have the road go up over the mountain. It's kind of in the valley. So, in essence, that may be the exact path that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on. Okay? So, um, So yeah, this is us kind of turning south, and then this road is going back up into one of the gates that leads uh, into the old city of Jerusalem, okay? So back to our text. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Now, um, in one of the Old Testament prophets, it was prophesied that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. Okay, so he is purposely fulfilling prophecy here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now, either this was a miraculous thing where, um, you know, the disciples are like taking this donkey, and the people go, Hey, what are you doing stealing that car? And, uh, They say, the Lord needs it, and they go, okay, take it. 
Or they just knew who the Lord was referring to, Jesus, and they, when they found out that it was Jesus, they said, okay, please, go ahead and take it. All right? So now Jesus has a donkey. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. There's the palms. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, that's a, 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 a term that simply means save. Save us. Right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118, which had come to be known as a messianic psalm. In other words, they're saying, save us, Messiah. Save us, Messiah. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. He's going to bring in the kingdom that David had. And he's a descendant of David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Palm Sunday has always been somewhat of a dilemma for preachers. Because on the one hand, we do want to join in with the crowd and sing Hosanna, save us. So our songs are, uh, they, they, they repeat those words, okay? On the other hand, should the fickle crowd be our guide? I mean, at the end of the week, what are they shouting? Crucify him, crucify him. Now, I have uh, traditionally used Palm Sunday as an opportunity for us to examine ourselves and ask, are we any more solid than the crowd? Might our faith be just fickle? Excited, shouting Hosanna, but are we truly saved? Okay. Now, recently, a number of scholars have challenged the idea that the crowd was fickle. All right, let me give you, uh, and this isn't the sermon, this is kind of the setup to the sermon, but let me give you their argumentation. They point out that some of the time, the crowd is delighted with Jesus. When he does a miracle, especially when he's putting the Pharisees in their place, uh, the crowd is delighted with Jesus. Other times, the crowd sides with the religious leaders and they want to see Jesus brought down. So the conclusion of some scholars is that there must have been two crowds. A pro-Jesus crowd and an anti-Jesus crowd. And the pro-Jesus crowd was there on Palm Sunday, and the anti-Jesus crowd was gathered on Good Friday. I don't buy it. Okay, Here's why I don't buy it. It doesn't factor in, and and my my idea is that while it it may not have been the exact same crowd, the crowd reflects the sentiment, the popular opinion of the people of Jerusalem. And the the two-crowd idea doesn't factor in the, the, the fact that even the apostles didn't have a clear picture of what the Messiah was supposed to do. There was this uh, one concept that he would be the conquering king. He would restore Israel to its former glory. He would lead an army against the Romans. 
and bring in political and military victory. I think that's what most of them were hoping for. But then there's also Isaiah 53, which talks about the Messiah being a suffering servant. So there was confusion even in the apostles, let alone the crowd. So when we read Hosanna, save, when we read that 2,000 years later, we think, save us from hell. Save us from our sin. Save us by dying on the cross, because we know the full story. Most of them, though, when they were shouting, Hosanna, save, what did it mean to them? Save us from Rome. Save us, from, save us from this oppression. Save us from these taxes that we have to pay. And these Roman sit, uh, soldiers walking around, bossing us around and telling us what to do. Right? So I'm not so sure the two crowd theory uh, factors that in. Caleb and I were talking about Mark Twain. Mark Twain um, uses church people as a character. The church people are kind of like the, the mob mentality with the torches and the pitchforks and they get excitable. Uh, the, the crowd, the church crowd, is a character. <clears throat> and I kind of think that the gospel writers are using the crowd as a fickle character blown to and fro by popular opinion. So the, the first argument that they give that there's two crowds is uh, you know, the, the pro-Jesus and the anti-Jesus people, I'm not so sure that factors in uh, the, the, the fickleness, all right? But a second argument they give is this. They, they say, well, it doesn't say it was the same crowd. My response, it doesn't say it was a different crowd. It's an argument from silence. You can't prove anything. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't go out of the way to say anything about it. So that's an argument from silence. But the third reason, and here's what, what I really think is going on. The real motive behind people who say there are two separate crowds is this. I think those scholars don't want to lose this passage as an example of genuine worship. I think for years we have uh, sung Hosanna, and we've had, you know, palm branches and little children bring in palm branches. And we don't want to lose that. So a way to rescue this passage is to say there were two crowds and this was a legitimate crowd. Uh, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't a fickle crowd. So let's not lose them. Now, here's what I would say. I think this is one of those examples where the words coming out of their mouth is absolutely true even though the understanding of the people speaking those words is confused. You know, we see that with Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and uh, the religious leaders start to get nervous, and they say, oh no, we're going to lose the crowd, everybody's going to go follow him. And Caiaphas says, uh, it says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. What did Caiaphas mean? It's better for us to murder him so we stay in power. What did the Holy Spirit mean? 
Yes, it's better for one man to die in your place under the wrath of God than for you to die and go to hell. Right? The guy who spoke the words didn't even know what he was saying, or he had a different intention, but the words were true. So I don't think we lose the passage and, and say we can't worship with it. The words are true. They're quoting from Psalm 118. Hosanna, save us. Yes, we can. Uh, so, so we can follow the crowd in the words, maybe not in their intention. Now, one last thought. Even if there were two separate crowds, there was probably some overlap. And we know of at least one person who was there on Palm Sunday who shared the same sentiment as the Good Friday crowd. Who was that? Judas. Right? And maybe Judas, like the crowd, thought, yes, we're going to conquer the Romans. And as the week went on, he saw Jesus wasn't making a move to do that. He said, I'm done with this guy. Now, he wasn't there on Good Friday. He had probably gone out and hung himself. But his sentiment was the same as that crowd. Right? So, all that is kind of a justification to say, let's use the crowd on Palm Sunday as a call to examine ourselves. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Folks, there is nothing more important that you can be doing than, than checking to make sure you're going to heaven and not to hell. That you are not deceived about your... What could be more important than making sure you're saved? Final four? Your lawn? Your job? Your health even? No. Eternity in hell. There is nothing more important going on, in the, on, on the planet right now than you stopping to check and make sure you're truly saved. So get your head in the game here. This is important. Now, I realize that whenever there's a sermon that calls us to check ourselves to make sure we're saved, um, those who are truly saved may end up going, I'm not saved. Right? The, the preacher's job is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And sometimes the comfortable get more comforted and the afflicted get or the, 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 the comforted who need to be afflicted get confirmed in their comfort. And the afflicted who are truly saved, they get more afflicted. But I'm going to just trust that the Holy Spirit applies this properly. Okay? So, here's what we're going to do. I want to cover four kinds of non-saving faith to make sure that we are not deceived about our salvation. Now you go... Pastor, is this an expository sermon or a topical sermon? Yes. Okay. We, we've exposited the text. Jesus is the Messiah. He's on a donkey. He's going into Jerusalem. The crowd was shouting, Hosanna, save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118. There, there it is. There's the heart of it. What, what are we to get out of it? I think one thing we're to get out of it is the crowd was emotionally tied to Jesus, but that emotional faith is not true saving faith. Let's examine ourselves now. Let's apply this. Let's find out the implications and realize that there are uh, there's false faith. I'm talking about four kinds of false faith, non-saving faith. You know, James uh, 
talks about two kinds of faith. A true faith that will produce fruit and a false faith that is non-saving and it won't produce fruit. There are two kinds of faith. So the first type of faith that doesn't save you is an emotion-based faith. These all begin with the letter E, amazingly. Okay? Um, Emotion-based faith. Now, don't get me wrong. I think true saving faith is full of emotion. Conviction of sin and and trust and joy. Uh, There's all kinds of emotion tied to true saving faith. But a faith that is based on nothing but emotion is not saving faith. It's typified by... um, in, in some churches and in some parts of the country, they always have an altar call. When I say an altar call, how many of you know what I mean when I say an altar call? Okay. So um, an altar call is when at the end of the service, the organist starts to play, just as I am, all 47 verses. And the preacher then says, come forward to receive Jesus. Walk the aisle. Come forward. And he's like, we're going to wait until somebody... And usually the preacher's kid comes down the aisle, right? And he gets saved every Sunday. Um, uh, In fact, I've had people from the South actually come up to me. They've come to Valley Brook and they've said, you know, up here in the North, you don't have those altar calls every Sunday. How does anybody get saved? As if you must have an altar call... And walk an aisle to get saved. Now, what verse is that? Hmm. Um, but let me tell you about some manipulation. Not all altar calls are bad, okay? But some are highly mani- manipulative, and they play on people's emotions. And I'll tell you about when I, uh, my, my first pastorate was up in Clintonville, Wisconsin. Okay, population 3,000, more cows than people. Elizabeth likes to say we went to town the first day. The one stoplight in town was down, and nobody cared, right? Um, so we're in this little church, and there's another, uh, another church in town, and I got to know the pastor. He was always, like, coming up with different ideas and outreach programs, and, um, and he was, well, let, let, let's just put it this way. He was going to save the town by bringing this revival speaker to town. And uh, he said, do you want to have your church participate? And I'm like, all right. (laughs) Um, He said, now what we need is a bunch of people to be counselors. So if people come down the aisle during the altar call, we'll have counselors, people who are trained, and we'll put you in a room with these people, and you can go through the gospel with them to make sure they really get it, and then uh, you pray a salvation prayer with them, and they'll be saved. I said, all right. So I got a bunch of people, and there was a training session the night before the revival. And in the training session, that guy said, all right, now here's what we're going to do. We're going to have this service. There's going to be music. There's going to be preaching, and there's going to be an altar call. And he said, now, when I have the altar call, all you counselors, you stand up first and you come forward. Kind of like priming the pump. 
Because the thinking is, you really do need to stand up and come forward to get saved. And if we can just, you know, create a flow, maybe that'll convince some other people to stand up and walk the aisle. And I'm thinking to myself, so you really think salvation is about emoting and getting people caught up in the emotion and coming forward? And he could tell. I think he looked at me. He could tell I'm going, this is manipulative. And he says, now, if you have a problem with this, you can stay in your seat. But I want you to think of it as literally leading people to Jesus. Really. So we need to get them all worked up and prime the pump so people go, well, I wasn't going to go down there, but I see old Billy Bob up there. He's going down the aisle. I'm going to follow him and I'll get myself saved. Um, so they had the, the altar call, and I sat there, but all the others went forward, and a bunch of people went down. And then I got matched up with this, I was going to say an older couple, but they were probably about my age now, so they weren't old. They were young, good-looking couple <laughs> from Clintonville. And uh, so they were crying, and they had walked the aisle, and we got... We sat in a little room, and we're supposed to go over this little gospel tract. And I could just tell something was wrong. And I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? I said, why did you walk the aisle? And he said, well, I'm a veteran. And during the service, they had all the veterans stand up. And they sang, proud to be an American." never been honored like that before. So I came down. Hey, what's that have to do with the cross? It really didn't. But he got caught up in the emotion. I love proud to be American. I have it on my running thing, you know. I, I, on, my, on my iPod, I, you know, I'm a redneck. I like it. Um, but it has nothing to do with salvation. So in essence, he got caught up in the emotion. They had the people walking forward. He walked forward. Yeah, we walked through the gospel. He didn't get it. But somewhere on the books is written, you know, April 12th, Clintonville, Wisconsin, 127 people got saved. It's pure emotion. Okay. Now, usually then, in altar calls like this, um, they're in, the, in the training afterwards, they're followed up with verses of, on assurance, like John 10, where it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Um, now, I believe, I am one of those who believe that this teaches that if you are truly saved, you are eternally held in God's hand. He will keep you. Okay, I do believe in eternal security for those who are truly saved. Here's the catch. Not everybody who walks an aisle is truly saved. But you get caught up in the emotion. You walk the aisle at the concert or at the revival or in church. And then you are given this verse and told, don't you ever doubt your salvation. So now we have somebody who's not saved, plastered with a verse on assurance, and they go to hell convinced that they were saved. 
Jesus told a parable about four soils, which represent four kinds of hearers of the true gospel. Not of the false gospel, but of the true gospel. Those on the path, those on the rocky soil, those on the thorny soil, and those on the good soil. Those on the path are those who aren't even interested at all. Those on the good soil are those who hear the gospel, and over time they produce a crop. But those on the rocky soil and the thorny soil are those who hear the gospel. There's an initial response, but over time they fade away showing they were never truly saved. Not that they were saved and lost it, but that their faith was never true faith. Now notice what this says about the rocky soil. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with what? Joy! There's emotion there. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in the time of testing, fall away. You see what it says they believe? Yeah, not all belief is saving belief. There's a false belief. In fact, Jesus said this to the Jewish people who were listening to him in John 8. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Oh, they must be saved. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide or continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. There's True belief and false belief. They all claim they believe, but he says, you know what the real test is? Over time, you're going to stick this thing out. Not everybody who professes belief is truly saved. And in the same crowd, speaking of, are there two No, the same crowd. This is what he says to them a few verses later. You are of your father the devil. He didn't think they were any more saved than the man in the moon. But they were said to believe. Right? So, here's a test. How do you know uh, if your faith is genuine or just based on emotion? Here's a real simple test. Can I define and defend the gospel? You know the gospel. Can you articulate it and defend it? If you can't, you're not saved. How can you bank your eternity on a message that you don't even understand? Yes, so many churchgoers. How are you saved? Well, it has something to do with Jesus and me being a good person. And if you cannot define and defend the gospel, then you're emotional about Jesus, you're emotional about church, you're emotional about religion, but if you can't define... You know, there are some propositional truths that you need to understand to be saved. And if you don't know what those are, how can you be saved? So let me ask you, can you explain and defend the good news, the gospel... Not the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the Gospel. And if you go, I don't think so, then you can't be saved. Now, we'll make sure you get it before before you leave, but that is a, a sure test. How can you be saved by something you don't understand? You can't articulate. You can't defend. Okay. Now, next week, we're going to learn about the thief on the cross who was no theologian, 
And he was truly saved by a, a speck of, tr- of faith. So I'm not saying you have to be a theologian, but you have to have true faith in the true gospel. Okay? So uh, now let me speed it up a little bit. That's um, an emotion-based faith that doesn't save. There's a second kind of faith, an earthly-based faith. You know, most of the crowd saw Jesus not as a savior from sin, but as a savior from Rome. You know what Judas's motive for following Jesus was? After all of three years of following Jesus, we find out that he was in it for the money. Remember the woman takes the jar of perfume and pours it over Jesus? But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? That's a year's wages. So what do you make in a year? And in one act of devotion, this woman pours 50, 60, 70, 80, $100,000 worth of perfume on Jesus. He, Judas, said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. It was all about money. It was all about getting ahead in this life. 30 pieces of silver they gave him to betray Jesus. That's about 7,000 bucks. It's a nice profit for a little kiss. Right? Now, you go, well, how crass that, that people would follow Jesus for material, earthly things. Well, the prosperity gospel that's on TBN and on TV and it preached in so many churches is no different. It is a Judas gospel. Accept Jesus as your Savior from what? From the middle class. Right? I mean, come on, you're working hard, you're barely making ends meet, you're struggling to have a 401k, but you've got to pay for your kids' clothes, and you're paying your rent, and you're, you're stuck in the middle class. Wouldn't it be nice to have a savior to bail you out of the middle class, and you'd be rich? Well, who doesn't want that savior? He's a magic genie. I'm, you, know what's, you know what's interesting about the... Uh, uh, the prosperity gospel is that so few people are actually following it. I mean, if, <laughs> yeah, I know they fill the Houston Stadium several times over for Joe Osteen to preach the prosperity gospel. Why don't more people buy it? If, I mean, I, if, if I'm a purely secular person and I want to be rich and Jesus is going to make me rich, why wouldn't I buy into that? But it's not the gospel. Now, let me um, point out that we can, I, I, I hope you can sniff out the prosperity gospel. But there's a gospel that's, in a sense, the same gospel. It's just packaged differently. It's called the felt needs gospel. The felt needs gospel, the preacher thinks, hmm, I'm going to be savvy. I'm going to find out what people's felt needs are. Could be loneliness. Could be a bad marriage. Could be parenting, lack of, like kids are out of control. 
And I am going to preach Jesus as the answer to whatever your felt needs are. Happens all the time. Now you say, but wait a minute, can't Jesus heal a bad marriage and heal bad kids and heal bad acne? Yeah, he can do that if whatever he wants, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is not come to Jesus for a better marriage. The gospel is come to Jesus to solve your main problem, which is a wrath of God problem. You, as a sinner, are under the eternal wrath of God. What are you going to do about that? That's your number one problem. Your number one problem, again, I've said this a million times, it's not your marriage. It's not the economy. It's not your acne. It's that you have sinned against a holy God. And you will stand before him on judgment day. And apart from Christ, you will be sent away to an eternity in hell because of your sin. That's your number one problem. And you can go your whole life not even realizing that, ignoring it, watching the commercials on TV, getting caught up on the latest game, the latest Super Bowl or the Final Four, you know, making your money, cutting your grass, just living the suburban life without really coming to grips with the fact that you're a sinner condemned before a holy God. That's your number one problem. Have you dealt with it? Or is it just kind of a blur that you don't want to deal with? All right? Now, here's the problem. The felt needs gospel is so prevalent that many people get drawn into a church by it. They think they're saved. Now they're in the world of evangelical Christianity. And at some point, they get disappointed with the church because they're going to. An unsaved person is going to be disappointed with whatever church they go to. So they go looking for a better one or one that's more according to their standards. And maybe they end up in an actual Bible teaching church. And they're there for years. But they were never really converted. They slid in. They were never converted. So here is a great question to ask. Did I slide in or was I converted? So many people were introduced to a felt needs gospel. Done with that church, go to another one. Go to another one. End up in a Bible teaching church. Never converted. They've slid in thinking they're saved. Okay, now, you say, um, now, Pastor, are you saying that everybody needs a dramatic conversion? Now, this is where I'm supposed to say, no, 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 don't worry about that. And I'm going to kind of surprise you. You better believe you need a dramatic conversion. What? Not everybody needs to have an Apostle Paul conversion where you're on your horse and the, Jesus himself appears to you and knocks you off the horse and blinds you for three days. But look at the language of conversion. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is not teaching sinless perfection. Right? Remember in connection time, we've talked about an over-realized eschatology. You know, some people think that, oh, I'm saved and I must be perfect. No. But there is a difference between being an old creation and a new creation. Right? What about Romans 6, 7? For one who has died has been set free from sin. The, the essence of salvation, you die with Christ. Sin is no longer your master. Doesn't mean you never sin. But before you were enslaved to sin, now you have been set free from that master. This has got to show up or you're not saved. John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, and unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about new life. A new creation. Dead to sin. And I don't care if you're five or 50 or 100. There has to be some kind of noticeable difference. Unless, of course, you've just slid across. Slid in under the radar. All right? So that's an emotion based faith, an earthly based faith. Here's another one, an endurance based faith. This is the person who says, well, I must be a Christian. Look how long I've been in. Look how long I've called myself a Christian and go to a Christian church. I must be a Christian. Careful. You can go a long period of time deceived. Judas walked with Jesus for three years. Saw him raise the dead, walk across water, feed the crowds. Never was saved. I've mentioned a guy named Charles Templeton before. Charles Templeton placed his faith in Christ at age 25. He was so on fire... He became an evangelist preaching Christ. Nine years later, he hooked up with a guy named Billy Graham. And they toured the world and Europe doing evangelistic crusades, preaching the gospel to millions. Thousands came to true faith in Christ through Billy Graham and Charles Templeton. Templeton died 16 years ago, 2001, and before he died, he wrote this book, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. He died an atheist. According to my theology, he was never saved. He was a Billy Graham, and he was never saved. You go, how can that be? Well, Jesus told us, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? That's what Templeton was doing. He was preaching in the name of Jesus. And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I will declare to them, sorry, you've lost your salvation. No, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Why is Templeton so shocking? 
Jesus said it's going to happen all the time. Churches are filled with pastors who aren't saved. Jesus says so. Well, how do you explain it? Because Templeton was so passionate as a preacher of the gospel. Well, John writes about this in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us. So there were many Templetons in the early church who started in the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Their departure showed that no matter how long they were with us, they were never really of us. So here's the test. Is my assurance of salvation based on years of church and ministry? It's a pretty weak foundation. You know, I think of... uh, The Apostle Paul in Acts 20. He calls the elders of the Ephesian church together. And he says this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So God had given Paul a prophecy that after he leaves, wolves were going to come into the Ephesian church and rip the sheep apart with false doctrine. Okay? But that's not all. And from among your own selves, maybe the very men who he was talking to, the elders of the Ephesian church, the very people he was talking to, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. But they were elders. They were pastors. Templeton was an evangelist with Billy Graham. Judas walked with Jesus, and they were all false believers. You say, why would they stay in? Pride is a powerful motivator. Once you're in a position of authority and importance... If you can't make it in the world, maybe you can make it in the church. People are going to look up to me. And I have a a title and a position of importance. I'm going to be in it for a long time. I'm going to hold on to that with all my might. But it was never true salvation. It was all about self. Last one. An environment-based faith. What do I mean by that? If you were to ask anybody on that Palm Sunday, are you going to heaven? They would have said, of course I'm going to heaven. And if you ask them why are you going to heaven, you know what they would say? Because I'm Jewish. We're the chosen people. I'm in the right group. Right? Let me in. 
Here's what John the Baptist said. And they were all Jewish people coming out to him. Here's what John the Baptist said. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, and I always say this is a great seeker-friendly sermon, you brood of vipers, you bunch of slithering snakes, right? you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You're under the wrath of God. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. See, true faith produces fruit. And do not begin to say to yourselves, now here's what they would say, we have Abraham as our father. Don't say to yourselves, I'm in the right group, I'm a descendant of Abraham, I'm a Jew, that makes me saved. What's he doing? He's saying you're not in by the group plan. Okay? For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Don't rest on the group plan. Now, um, today, how many people do you hear, you say, why are you going to heaven? Well, because I'm Catholic. Because I'm Lutheran. Because I was, I was born and raised in a Baptist church. I was born and raised in Valley Brook. Some of you were. So, what does that have to do with anything? So, here's the test. Now, I'm going to borrow the test from the first one. Can I define and, can I define and defend the gospel? All the people with bad backs are getting up now. I know, I'm going long, sorry. Um, but this is important. Your salvation kind of, you know, rests on getting this right. So, quit moving around. <laughs> All right. Could you listen to this, please? All right. um, the gospel is this. I'm a sinner. If you don't think you're a sinner, you're a million miles away. From salvation. Step one, you've got to acknowledge I'm a sinner. And when I stand before God, the gospel is not, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm pretty good. I'm better than those guys at work. That's not the gospel. The gospel begins with, I'm a sinner and I deserve damnation because of my sin. Now, if you're not willing to say that, you, you can't be saved. Because salvation is for sinners. Are you a sinner who understands you deserve eternal damnation? I don't believe in hell. Then your view of God is not the true God. He's not holy. Your God is a, a less than holy God. A holy, righteous God must punish sinners. What hope do we have? That Jesus, who rode in on the donkey on Sunday, was nailed to the cross on Friday. And he was paying the debt for your sin. The good news is, the, the bad news is, you can't pay for your sin. You can't be righteous enough. The good news is, God became man and he died in your place. And he fully pays the full price 
for your sin. Now, that's the mechanics of it, but here's the really good news. Convinced sinners who are hopeless and have no confidence in themselves, when you place your confidence, it's called faith, it's called trust, when you place your faith in Jesus and you're trusting him alone, the promise is you will be saved. Based on him, not you. You can't mix. He did 50% and I'm pretty good myself. That's not the gospel that will end you in hell, end you up in hell. The gospel is I have nothing to offer. He paid it all. Look at how merciful and loving and gracious he is. And the, the free offer is trust in me. You see, emotion-based faith wants an experience. Earthly-based faith wants a genie to grant you whatever wish you have. Endurance-based faith wants credit for hanging in there for all these years. Environment-based faith wants a family pass. True saving faith wants a savior, not to save you from Rome or to save you from your felt needs. True saving faith wants a savior who's willing to endure the wrath of God on my behalf so my sins can be paid for and when I trust in him I can now enter in with confidence into the family of God and spend eternity in his presence. Trust him. Abandon your emotion-based faith. Abandon your earthly-based faith. Abandon your endurance-based faith. Abandon your environment-based faith. And you know what, kids? Some of you were raised in Valley Brook. It's not your parents' faith that's going to get you in. You must personally turn your back on all that, let go of mom and dad's hands, and embrace Jesus by faith. Now, you are not, let me say this, you are not saved by anything you do. It's what he did. But true faith now says, I want to follow you. I want to obey you. And the first thing that Jesus says to do is get baptized. Let me know if you want to get baptized. It doesn't save you. But true faith wells up and says, of course I want to identify with Jesus. But make sure you are placing your faith in him and him alone, not him plus your good works. All right? That is the good news. Let's pray. Worship team, come on up.